Welcome to the Awakening Shalom Podcast. The Awakening Shalom Podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening Series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things. Welcome back to our podcast series, Theopolitical Creativity, Race, Faith, and Politics. We are so excited to be back for episode two and to get deeper into this work. And we also have a special guest who we will introduce in a few moments. Um, ben, I, I just wanted to pick up, because last time you were you were wearing your Baldwin 2020 shirt, and we were talking in the last episode about how I was a part of a faith tradition where, um, you know, Black preachers run for office very often, so there really yeah. isn't a separation between faith and politics. So I wanted to bring my shirt from 2014. <laughs> <laughs> My pastor in Harlem was running for a seat in the 13th Congressional District. And so I wanted people, especially at our congregation, um, to really see how interwoven this culture is. I mean, we were wearing these shirts, not really on Sunday morning, though some people did, but we were wearing these shirts and canvassing. And it wasn't really about believing our pastor was the best candidate because he was our pastor. But I mean, if you actually watch the debates of the other two men that were running against him, he was clearly the most imaginative, the most creative, which is in line with what we're talking about on this uh, on this podcast series. And so it's very much interwoven. Mm-hmm. Very much. So I wanted to bring my shirt. I didn't wear I it. That. I love seeing it. Yeah, I mean that's it's a it's a it's a reminder, right, for for the white community, folks from the white church tradition, that we try to create create these like really separate categories and um um, compartmentalize things in areas to try to like keep them safe we do that in a lot of ways not just intellectually but you know in urban planning all kinds of different things so um and and the world is so much more complex than that and so much more interwoven and more and and these neat boundaries and tidy little compartments and boxes that we create actually don't work or serve us or anybody else um, and so just kind of wrestling with that because of the history, we don't have, mu- we don't have muscle memory on leaning into the complexity and the intertangling of, of, of um, sort of church and pastors running for political office in the same way uh, in sort of the mainline tradition that, that we see, um, the mainline white tradition as we see in the black community. So I, I love that. And it's an important reminder like we did last week about social location right everything starts with that yeah yeah um so i just want to i want to drop that in there and it was a moment in time um but (laughs) certainly something that i had been a part of um and so we're going to open with our quote as we do every episode today's quote is from a book called theopolitical imagination christian practices of space and time by william t kavanaugh And I want to say a little bit about some of the concepts in it. I have not read it in its entirety, but uh, William Kavanaugh deals with the myth of the state as savior. 
so that some kind of way the state will save us. Mm -hmm. um, and he also deals with the myth of civil society as free space. So if if society is civil, if we could just have civility, then everybody will be free. And mm. that is not true. Um, so he's wrestling with these two myths um, that I've come across so far. So the quote is from page 90, I believe, in the book. And it says, we must cease to think that the only choices open to the church are either to withdraw into the private or sectarian confinement or to embrace the public debate policed by the state. Mm. We must cease to think that the only choices open to the church are either to withdraw into the private or sectarian confinement or to embrace the public debate policed by the state. I thought that this was timely given uh, this week's events um, yeah. that I still have not watched in its entirety because I don't have the, the nerves. But <laughs> it ain't worth it. Yeah. Um, so I just want to drop that out there as we as we enter into conversation. We have a special guest today. I am super excited to hear from Minister Candace Simpson. Candace, can you introduce yourself for the people? <laughs> Greetings and salutations, Earthlings. <laughs> um, I am Minister Candace Simpson. I use she/her pronouns. I'm calling in all the way from. Brooklyn, New York, which is the best small big town in the whole world. Um, it just is what it is. Um, I am an associate minister at the Conqueror Baptist Church of Christ in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm so excited to be here um, with my seminary classmate, the Reverend Mia, <laughs> and it's just so good to be with you both. Thank you. Thank you so much, Candice, for, for joining us. Um, yesterday, when we were recording episode one, Ben and I started the conversation by talking about our social location as it relates to this combo of faith and, and public policy and politics. So can you give the people a little bit of detail about how you are entering the conversation today, particularly in this political moment we are in right now? Um, you know, so it's funny because um, Girlfriends was just released on Netflix like maybe a few weeks ago and what I love about watching um, media from like geez like 20 years ago at this point um, 20 15 years ago is allowing myself to be surprised that some things are just the same and um, I will be 30 in January, so I have not seen as many years as others have. Um, I, I find myself around elders who remind me that the world has always looked like this, that there has always been trouble all over this world. And certainly this is a, a strange iteration of the evil that our ancestors and our elders have witnessed. Um, but I was watching Girlfriends and one of the characters said something to the effect of, oh, well, you know, they steal elections. And I said to myself, oh yeah, that's right. Cause remember 2000, like remember that whole Florida recount? Remember, I mean, that was a moment. Um, and so when we talk about political moments, I have to remind myself that the things that we're seeing are not new things. They're 
um, as Adrian Marie Brown would say, that things are getting uncovered. It's not the end of the world. It is an unveiling, something that we're witnessing um, that quite frankly, many people have warned us about and many people have um, tried to focus our gaze towards. Um, so when I think about the phrase political moment, I'm like, well, which one? Do we mean <laughs> the last four years under this particular president? Do we mean the last presidency, which is the one where the movement for Black Lives was birthed? Um, do we mean Bush? Do we mean Clinton? Do we mean, Ray I mean, who who are we talking about? Um, so that's that's what I'm I'm thinking of as I'm also trying not to get numb and completely um, disinterested and even, what's the word? Um, apathetic. So yeah, yeah. holding all that. I, I, I thank you for the, for forcing clarification because when I said political moment, I don't even know what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> right. Because like, I'm thinking the, this particular election, but this particular election is just a, a, a drop in the a bucket of a, a centuries of turmoil in communities. I'm not sure what, what Ben, what Ben, what would you define as the political moment? Um, because I lacked clarity there. Um, <laughs> I love the way that Candace um, is teaching uh, it through her language not to um, say things like worst time um, and um, worst ever or new or fresh. Um, uh, you know, I, I love that phrase, what fresh hell is this? But um, it, it's, there's nothing fresh about it, right? It's very stale. It's dated. It's, it's, it's an unveiling, it's an uncovering. Uh, that language is so helpful um, because there's no, there's no where to go back to to find a pure moment of uh, justice or even conciliation of any kind. Um, all there is is empire, empire building, and all, there is a long history, of course, of oppression many different kinds of intersecting oppression. And uh, while there has been a counter revolution, a movement for democracy and for freedom and for rights and for liberation, um, it's the, the blowback is constant. And uh, the evil that we face continues to transform itself into new iterations constantly. Um, and if we're not paying attention to that historical truth, we will miss how it's being reborn as a as another evil in the present, um, or what what has already been there always that it's being unveiled. To Candace's point, that we then have to go back and reckon that we we did not liberate ourselves from this before, and now we face it again because we thought we could. Um, we could, thought we could do a surface level change. We keep kind of saying, if we just prune the tree, we can, um, we can fix the tree or, or get the tree to, to, to grow into something healthy. But the roots, right, are, are, uh, are the problem. And, and so it's our, I think it's our lack of our desire as human beings to want to continue to live in denial. Um, and so we keep going into denial to, to, and we, f we forget about the history. We're very forgetful. So we forget about the history and then we suffer the same problem again.
Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that reflection. Um, Candice, so in terms of your experiences in church, what role has the church, your church, your experience with church played in politics? I'm curious about your background in that. Um, as Ben and I shared in the, in the previous episode, uh, Ben came from a tradition that even, you know, the ballots were handed to him, completed in one of your church contexts, the ballots were handed to you and who you were supposed to vote for. I came from a tradition where we had um, people running for office speaking on Sunday morning. That was a part of our culture. There was no separation. So I'm curious about church and politics in your, in your past and present traditions. So that iconic photo of Shirley Chisholm announcing her candidacy for president of the United States actually was taken in the fellowship hall, Memorial Hall at Concord Baptist Church of Christ. And um, I've listened to people talk about like what that moment meant. I mean, of course, when things get cemented in history, we tend to we do tend to glamorize and, you know, kind of fawn over the past. Um, but when I think of like church and politics, that's the first um, image that I have in my mind. Um, and I think it's significant that in a church, in a black church, that is um, like so many other black churches supported by the work of and the dreaming of black women that this black woman would announce her presidency here. Um, and it matters that it's this particular candidate. So Shirley Chisholm was endorsed by the Black Panthers and everyone told her, oh no, you might wanna distance yourself. You, this is not, you know, and she refused to um, distance herself politically from that community, which says a lot. I mean, it says a lot about her integrity um, and who she was just as a, a community leader. Um, if you ask people of a certain generation in Bedside, they have fond memories of what it is, what, what it meant to have someone like her. Um, and of course, like all politicians, people have critiques as they should because politicians are not gods. And even our gods deserve a little side eye occasionally because sometimes I don't know what they are on. Um, so that's the first image that I think of, but I think I, I, I have a hard time um, locating and situating all of my excitement about politics within electoral politics. So, of course, that's like the first image that I think of. But when I think about like Black church and politics, I also think about um, spiritual care and nourishment and community building as a political um, need as something that is, it, it is absolutely spiritual and community-based, but it also is a political project. I think Black people deciding to get together and worship is a political statement. And I think the ways that we, the kinds of God, the, the kind of images of God that we imagine, the kind of, um, the ways we talk to and about God is a political project. You know, when we, when we talk about you know, has he ever made a way when he didn't have a dime? Has he ever stepped in just right on time? 
you know, like, has he ever picked you up when you are down? Has he ever placed your feet on solid ground? Then you know he is a rock in a weary land. You know, this is about Christ. And it's also about our community, like other Black people. It's about how we experience salvation through um, really intimate relationships, um, such that, you know, towards the beginning of the pandemic, I was really in a funk. Um, and I got a text message from one of the deacons at the church, and she said, what you doing? And I said, I'm obviously in my house. And she said, well, come outside. And she just came by to wave at me, which really made a difference in that day, in that week, in that season. So to be remembered by somebody else um, made me want to remember somebody else. And I think that's what churches at our best um, can do. We can remind people that they're not forgotten that they're not disposable, that they're not trash, like the world has told them and us that we are. So I think that's what I think of when I'm thinking of Black church and politics. Yeah. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. of, I mean, sure, I had no idea. So that Shirley Chisholm made that announcement there. So that was news to me. Um, and <laughs> certainly, I don't know if Ben wants to riff, uh, riff here, but we've had conversations about uh, people's tense tension with our engagement with politics we we mm -hmm. had somebody as a guest speaker last week who we didn't even have as a political candidate but they're running for office um we just had them as an an act uh, as an activist and an author and there was some tension there because they are running for office and i know that um that's part of working in our particular church context and to respect that um but it's so interesting to hear that it's just such a, a normal thing to have somebody come and be like, yeah, I'm running for president and I'm making my announcement in the fellowship hall. <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And I think the thing that, first, first of all, that's fascinating. The Shirley Chisholm story is incredible and, and how that's like one of a foundational memory for you and how different that is for a lot of folks in our tradition uh, or my tradition. Um, and, but I, the thing that really just, kind of blew me away about what you were saying, Candace, is how you described pastoral caregiving and worship as political activities. And in, I just this week had somebody on a phone call try to kind of say to me, well, we were really hoping that during this pandemic, you would be more pastoral and less political or less prophetic, they said, um, or that the balance would be better. There would be more balance of the of the pastoral with the prophetic, and um, yeah, I see. <laughs> there's some uh, some side eye to those to, to the gods of separation, right? Like, like why? How is it that we got to a place where we think pastoral caregiving and prof prophetic preaching or pastoral preaching are different? Or, you know, what? how did we get there? What is that about? What does that mean that they think worship is not a political activity? Mm. What is it? What is it then? What, what are we doing then? What is it a country club? Is it a, what are we doing if it's not political? Um, you know, and so there's this, this limited, again, a limited imagination um, and a narrow view. And, and maybe this is something unique to the white tradition 
um, uh, or specific and especially in the white sort of main line and we called it the purple church tradition <laughs> yesterday um, also and um, but it's very frustrating to 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 try to lead people even I just I'll use the language of pastor people who have compartmentalized prophetic and pastoral activity separating them distinctly from one another and critiquing their clergy for engaging in one more than the other and and giving us like a scale in which we have to balance um, whatever they mean by pastoral with whatever they mean by prophetic uh, on some kind of scale so and i love I, how you said that a pastoral is political that, that's powerful to me yeah sorry Maria. mia would um, even say that it's not just the, the white mainline church, but I've heard similar sentiments from certain Black churches. We call them high, I don't know what Candace calls them, but I call them high Baptists or the high tradition, who are also critiquing their Black pastors who are very being very political in their preaching right now. Um, and certainly that's a form of assimilating to whiteness. Um, which we'll talk a little bit about later, but I've heard that as well from from a few Black uh, ministers who work in these types of churches as well. I'm not sure if Candace has heard anything similar. I mean, I think this is a this is a project of as leaders, and we are all leaders. So there are lay leaders, and then there are um, religious professionals who are like pastors and and in other capacities. Um, I think it's a project in hearing feedback and really listening to the heart of what people are saying. So I think if if someone were to say, "Well, oh, I wish you were you weren't so political," I think the the response ought be a question, which is, "What does that mean to you? What is it? What what is what rubs you raw? What what?" What about the sermon or my Facebook post felt too political? Um, I think sometimes people get, I don't know that we are always able to articulate like what's really irritating us. Sometimes people just don't wanna be in church on Sunday and hear statistics or even hear anything about that man in the White House. Sometimes people come to church and they want to escape. And I think that's valid. I think that it's, that is a human, look, I didn't watch the base on Monday or whatever day that was because I couldn't. I'm like, I'm not doing it. I don't wanna engage, I don't wanna think about it. But that doesn't mean that I, because I didn't participate in that activity that I've um, bowed out of um, political engagement. It means that I choose to do this work in a different kind of way. Like, I think we all have to acknowledge our boundaries and what we can and cannot hear. Um, now, of course, some people, they will say things like, you know, I want to hear this social justice stuff, rah, 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 you know? And so I think strategically what our task, our challenge is, is, is then to find um, where in the Bible can we express the 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 kernel of that political thing that we're trying to to point to so that you know sometimes you gotta be subversive i think that was part of um mm -hmm. there's so much wisdom in the bible but i think what draws me to christ is 
that man was a master pedagogue and could talk about trees and fish and flowers and lilies and things like that in a way that opened up curiosity because we're still talking about these parables like thousands of years later. And I think perhaps the worst thing that happened to our faith is um, just the binaries of like flesh and spirit and male and female and you know all these things that we imagine are opposite and against each other. Um, and that's just something that we're now now we're dealing with the consequences of that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think about someone like Cardi B, who, along with Megan Thee Stallion, has like a, a top, like top selling song. And people are like, oh, how can she sing that? Because she's a mother. And I was like, well, exactly. She's a mother. Like, how do you think people become mothers? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like what? You know, but but we have a hard time seeing people do two things at once, you know, mm -hmm. so people could not take seeing her post pictures of her daughter and then also promote this album. Like, and so we just have a hard time holding all of these parts of ourselves together. And that's for real, for real. Um, white supremacy has taught us to do that. And it's, it's taught us to be skeptical of those places within us where all of these things meet we're so we're so afraid of of being more than just pastoral or prophetic so mm. we can be all the things we can be all the things in mm. christ who strengthens us <laughs> <laughs> candace i want to get into some of your work um and i will preface this by saying that lately on social media, I've been seeing a lot of people talking about abolition and some people know what they're talking about and some people don't. <laughs> and it's very clear who has done the reading and who hasn't. Um, and so I invited you because I feel like you've done the reading and I would like as somebody who is still learning and who has not done all the reading. Um, and so I can't talk fully about it. I want to hear about your understanding of abolition as it relates to this conversation of faith and politics, what is the vision that you and others are calling us toward? I think, well, first, I think it's important to say that like, <laughs> even people who do the reading are still doing the reading. Like, and I think that's something that I, when I'm in space with, um, abolitionists who's taught me like and who I consistently learn from the most the most beautiful thing about being in that community is that people are asking questions and being reflective and even you know modeling a a, a posture of self-critique which is dang I used to think this and I don't think that anymore I can't believe I used to be I mean and you you hear this consistently like questioning of, of, of where we are and how we got here and, and, and like the, the possibilities are endless. Um, when I think of abolition, I, I think it is my only choice. I think it's our only choice. And, um, you know, as you've said, it's a hot topic lately. And 
it's also something that is, um, oh Jesus, <laughs> I, it's something that is, it is um, stirring up a lot of dust and it's, if I could be frank, it's, it's putting people in danger because um, I think what we're saying often gets maligned. Like I think what we're saying is intentionally misunderstood, um, intentionally misconstrued, um, because you know, haters gonna hate, potatoes gonna potate. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I remember a time in my life, and it wasn't that long ago, where I believed in reform. I believed in prison reform. I believed in um, police training and accountability. And, you know, I I thought that we could train our ways out of this. And I've watched enough and I've seen enough people become hashtags to know that even in the places where we have instituted these reforms, even in the places where we have body cameras, even in the places where um, people have done the bias training, they've done the implicit, you know, bias conversations and the professional development, people are still be being killed. Um, the chokehold in New York has been illegal. Um, and, it, and at some point we have to ask what is this demon that forces and encourages people to view Black people and particular Black people as something to be exterminated, like vermin? I mean, this is a spiritual issue. It's, it's, it's not something that can be, um, you know, book clubbed away. Even though I believe in a good political education session, I think um, there are just some things that have to be exercised exorcised like and there's there are some demons that that we have been playing with um and when you track the history of modern policing it is through slave patrols and um i think at this stage of my life my concern about abolition and this is something i've been working through with others is like well what happens if when we get to the place where we have defunded the police and we've disbanded these police departments, what happens then when wealthy white folks decide to invest in private security? And what happens when they buy, um, you know, excess weapons from the military? What happens when people, I mean, at some point, it, you, this is what I'm saying about like, we have to keep digging and keep thinking about what else is possible um, and that's not to say that, like, I don't want to defund the police. I do. Um, but I think we also have to consider that this is powers and principalities. And at some point, we are going to have to sit with just how evil um, this world can be. And so when I, you know, I had heard this word abolition um, since I was a child. And I never, I think in the last like five years is when I heard the word abolition around police and prison. Um, when I had first heard abolition, of course, I was thinking and was taught about 
um, the institution of slavery and um, really the founding of this nation. And I thought, you know, I've learned about abolitionists and like famous abolitionists, um, emancipation proclamation, whatever that did, um, you know. And so one of our pastors at Concord, Leonard Black was a formerly enslaved person who freed himself and ran away. And he was at Concord for maybe two years or so. And he had to just dip, like he had to escape because the Fugitive Slave Law was enacted, the Fugitive Slave Act was enacted. And even as pastor of the Concord Baptist Church at this time, he was in danger. And so he had to flee again to Canada. And when I think of that inheritance, when I think of that legacy, when I think of what's in our institutional DNA, um, I don't think there's any other choice but abolition. I mean, our ancestors, they had no choice. Like it's not, a, it's not an intellectual exercise. It's not theory. It's not, you know, something in the sky. It's, this is survival. Um, and so I don't know how, I just don't know how to live in a world that makes space for treating entire classes of humans as disposable, as, you know, disappearable, as, I mean, and that's a spirit, again, it's a spiritual idea. It's, it is, once you have decided that someone is not deserving of the freedoms that you enjoy, you've unlocked a dimension around a, like once you allow that, then I do think a part of you becomes dehumanized. I think you lose a part of your humanity and I think you, I don't know, it's gonna take more than prayer. Um, <laughs> a little book list. Um, mm. Wow, thank you, Candace. I want to see if I can jump in here on this one. So, uh, as as a as a person who sits in a social location uh, uh, and uh, an ancestry of people who have dehumanized themselves and then dehumanized others. Um, one of the things that I have become, have been coming to wrestle with is that um, uh, one of the demons that we like to play with, to use your language, uh, that needs to be exercised is uh, whiteness itself. Um, and, um, and, and so, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, lots of theologians describe it as a principality or a power. Uh, that has to be exercised, uh, or you could even say abolished, um, although you don't hear a lot of people talking about abolishing whiteness, <laughs> or at least I don't hear a lot of people talking about abolishing whiteness. Oh, we're uh, talking about it. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, hush harbors and other things where some folks are not present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, that's great. So, I, well, maybe that's a good segue then into what are, what is the conversation about that and what is it what does it look like for you know people racialized as white to participate in the abolishing of their 
of, of, of their own, of the thing that they participate in and benefit from. Uh, and, and what does that look like? You know, I was just having a conversation with my mom the other night because um, abolition is, it is a constant, um, it is a constant curiosity. And so the abolitionists ask, well, how can we fill in the blank? You know, so if, for example, we notice that a lot of children are being picked up by police officers at a certain time, then the abolitionist says, hmm, why are these children being targeted at this time? And what can we create instead to um, keep them out of the system? And I think, um, you know, that's why after school programs matter. That's why um, sports, music, um, other, you know, community-based activities matter. Um, and that's the everydayness, as Emily Towns would say, um, the everydayness of, of resistance. And so for white folks, I think it's just too easy to fall out of the everydayness. And so the earlier this summer, you know, now this is, a, you want to talk about abolishing things. We also need to really reflect on who we riot for and who we rage for. Um, people have forgotten Tony McDade's name, who was a black trans man killed by police, but they have not forgotten George Floyd. And in some other ways, We've not forgotten Breonna Taylor, but part of that is because people are making memes out of her and we can come back to that conversation um, maybe later. But I remember, you know, earlier in the summer, there were all these stories of black people being killed by police and white people just had the space to be sad about it and, and pretend to be outraged, pretend to be shocked, pretend to be, um, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten from well-meaning white folks who were like, what do you need? How can I support you? How can I, and they went unanswered because again, this is not new. This is, things are just being uncovered. They're just, we are, seeing things and, and it's new to you, you know, but it's not new to us. And so I think part of, of that is um, to resist the, the surprise and the shock and the awe, um, that's something that white people get to do. And so this, this happens almost like quarterly where like hyper visible black women and like certain kinds of black women get an uptick in PayPal, unsolicited PayPal donations because white people realize this quarter, oh my gosh, racism exists. <laughs> and so instead of practice putting these, these anti-racist, whatever that means, um, practices and postures, um, you know, into real life at your day job, you sending people $25 here and there, like that has fixed something. Now I'm gonna get my nails done, so thank you. Um, but I think 
navigate like the why is it possible for you to do away with $25 and think nothing of it? You know, like what is it because you, you've got more $25 um, where that comes from, right? And where did that come from? And I don't think we are having those conversations or we, that's a big word. I don't think white people are really interrogating um, the, the fluidity, the, the casualness, the the mm. ease of popping in and out of these um, cycles of grief. Um, so, mm. I I would love to live in a world where whiteness does not exist. Um, and I would love to see how that comes about. Um, there are places where it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, at least not how it exists here. Um, but then again, even in those places, there's colonization. Yeah. And there's power struggles and there's caste struggles. And like, so even where white people are not present, there's still this underlying battle of power, which, you know, as someone who's from the States, I see that as a white thing. It's a white logic. It is a white way to exist in the world. Um, so uh, the the white saints gonna have to get in that prayer closet <laughs> and uh, <laughs> really talk to their Jesus. Well, maybe not to their Jesus. They, no, they no. might need to. <laughs> Mm-mm. Not that white Jesus. You might need to find a new Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a book on that. Um, who wrote the book? Was it Jacqueline? Jacqueline Grant who said white women's Black women's Christ and white women's Jesus. Am I mistitling that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, so I was thinking about for, you know, how white folks, who do they have ancestors to draw on, right? You know, that is the struggle uh, to identify people who, who have embodied you know, justice and, and truth and critique of the system and lived it in their lived reality. Finding true saints is a challenge. That's a challenge. Well, and I think I always get really like freaked out when white people start calling on their ancestors because I'm like, hold up, do not bring them into this room. (laughs) They need to um, register mm. and come through a screening process. You know, when we, whenever we have like you know gatherings, people are like, oh my aunt, I'm like, Ooh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> mm. um, but I, I think when I when I humble myself and I really think about the places in my life where I have power, the places in my life where, um, where I have cushions, and one of those places is my faith. Of course, Black Christians get treated differently than white Christians and other kinds of Christians. Um, But I still have privilege and uh, there are powers that come with identifying as a Christian. Um, And so I, I do, when you talk about like, you know, our ancestors who we probably should not bring into the room, um, 
I think about people in our holy text who mm. we got some examples of some trifling people and mm -hmm. um, but I think the faith and the, the project of the faith is not to put people on pedestals or to try to sanitize their legacy but to really confront the activities of their hands and their hearts and to see what they did and to, to really look in the mirror and say, is this who we want to be? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I think that is the beauty of the Bible. Um, and as a, a black queer woman, um, I have every right to not open that book because of the ways that it has been used as a weapon against me and people that I love. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the power of a common text like a Bible is that we get to, as a community, later on discern, all right, this King Nebuchadnezzar, are we going to do this again or are we not going to do this again? Mm. All mm. right, like Pontius Pilate, this guy is in this story. Are we going to do this again or are we not going to do this again? Like even, you know, some of the disciples and some of the writers of the letters i mean we get the we get to say to these words this part is good i'm not gonna do this i'm not gonna do that like we get to have a discernment and i think mm -hmm. we you know get to look at our theological ancestors and ask those questions and i think white people get to ask that question of their answers ancestors um and to say um this is what has been done in my name and I need to sit with that. I need to feel whatever feelings I have. I need to process that and hopefully not like with black folks because we are not <laughs> spiritual mammies and wet nurses. Mm. Um, and I think that happens a lot. Like a, a lot of white people will confess to black people I'm like, what do you, what am I supposed to do with this information? <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, right? Like, but but that is that's also spiritual work is confronting those people in your our bloodline, whether it's real or um, spiritual or you know fictive, and to really sit with what is in us, and yeah. and are we gonna um, are we going to be those kinds of people in this world? Mm. You said King Nebuchadnezzar and Ben has preached like 17 sermons on Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> okay. I'm exaggerating, more like four, but... <laughs> I do have to mention that I love the fact that this one thing about the Bible, how, his, how, the, how the Hebrew people change his name by changing one letter and... <laughs> call him you know preserve my jackass is what it really means when they say it and so i that's what i say now about you know certain other nebuchadnezzars in this world you know it's like this is a jackass this is what we call this is what the, the the people they knew it they wrote it into their sacred text when they described this person and they were it was subversive to your point earlier they found a way to change one letter and to as a powerful act of critique and political um resistance i love it political resistance though the fact that people can say that politics don't belong in church but we're having this conversation 
And in the sacred text, we're seeing these people calling a politician essentially a jackass. Mm. This is not new. <laughs> you know, this is, I, I don't know. I mean, we know what happened and how things kind of got entangled and disentangled, but this is not a, a new thing to be having a political critique coming from people of faith. Mm. Mm. Yeah. No. So, so Candace, you mentioned the, the, the sacred text. And as we begin to wrap up, we, we close each of these episodes with theological imagination. Um, and so I'm curious about, Ben, and you can jump in here too. I talked about my text last time, so I won't do much this time. But I'm curious about what sacred texts inspire your, uh, your leaning into of the abolitionist movement, the, the nouveau or whatever we want to call it. Um, I think of Leviticus 25, but I'm curious about what you lean on if you had to get explicitly spiritual or theological with people. How much time we got? Because you know I love to play in the Bible. So I <laughs> Um, so one of my favorite texts, and it always says something different to me every time I read it, is um, the widow in Second Kings 4. And um, it's the story of this woman whose children are about to be sold into debt slavery. Um, and so the prophet tells her to go next door to all of her neighbors and collect containers. So she goes next door to collect the containers and the prophet tells her, all right, now close the door and begin to pour from your own oil container into these other containers that you've borrowed. Um, and when I, in my imagination, like I, I think about the relationships that are kind of implied because I don't let people borrow my Tupperware. So, cause sometimes you're just not going to get it back. And so the fact that all these people lent this woman her, you know, their containers is, a, is already an indication about the strength of the relationship that, that they had. At least that's my take on it. And so she goes, you know, she closes the door and she's pouring into all of the containers. And by some miracle, the oil keeps flowing from container to container to container. Of course, with the, the hope that she would take this oil and then sell it so that she could get herself out of this really exploitative um, predicament. And what I love about that text is it's such a, like this is a real circumstance. Like there are actual widows. There are actual um, people who, are widows, like this is not like a metaphor for something. Um, and in a patriarchal society and in a capitalist society, these are very vulnerable people. And politically, economically, spiritually, otherwise, these are very vulnerable people. And she got kids and she's able to go from house to house to house and, and get these containers. And what I love about this story is that it's such an organic, and such a familiar image of, um, in my imagination, this is a black mama who's going from door to door and doing what she got to do for her children. And um, I think sometimes when people speak about abolition, again, like 
abolitionists have been, you know, people say, oh, you, you do so much theory and, you know, the people in the hood don't get it, but people do get it. People do know what it's like to share resources, to do mutual aid, to watch each other's kids, to create pods of accountability. I mean, before Miss Rona, we were doing that. Um, and in neighborhoods that are being gentrified and colonized, that strength, that, um, that strong community tie is being dissolved. And so abolition in, in that, that um, story, I like that that story centers this woman and her children, and it doesn't appeal to the power systems that already exist. And so there may be a time, like I said, where we don't have police and we don't have prisons. And until that time, we still have to create a culture of, um, create a culture of, of community and create a culture of supporting and loving and protecting and looking out for each other because the state is not gonna do it. I mean, I I understood and I understand the significance of um, the communal mourning that people are doing around the passing of Justice Bader Ginsburg. I absolutely think it it makes sense that people are sad. Um, and it also makes sense that people are angry about the potential replacement and before things get to the Supreme Court, they have to be enacted in everyday interactions. And so before they get there, it's the way that you and I treat each other, the way that I choose to evict you in a pandemic, or the way that I choose to hire someone else um, because it's easier for me to have this person in the office than someone else. Or, I mean, you just, you can't, you can't legislate humanity. This is, it's an important thing. I mean, we need, clearly, there are things that the Supreme Court has allowed for me as a Black queer woman to do. And when I think about that story of this woman and, you know, going door to door, um, you got to do what you got to do. Like we got to take care of each other and, and just pretend like the state is never going to catch up. Just mm. pretend like they like, pretend like you can't count on them. And I think that's why we full circles. We're talking about this political moment. I'm not despairing, at least not today. Maybe, you know, later on, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I won't be able to fall back asleep, but I don't, I don't believe that this nation will take care of us. Um, I'm not hopeful about it, but I do believe that we can take care of each other. Um, and that's where I put my, my attention. That's, my hope is built on nothing less <laughs> mm -hmm. than Jesus' blood and righteousness and mutual aid, period. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, indeed. This is this communal salvation thing that I am obsessed with. But after reading Monica Coleman's work, and that's a huge part of what she talks about in her book, Making a Way Out of Nowhere, which is also full circle because you 
were singing, you were quoting that song from earlier, but mm. she lingers on the, the mutual aid piece, the communal salvation. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for that theological imagination. Ben, do you have any reflections? Um, uh, my mind is blown right now. So I'm, <laughs> I'm still thinking about the exegesis and the sermon we just heard. Um, and, and, and I think, I think the thing that really strikes me and, and kind of hits me to my core is, is how, um, in, in my particular education on this topic, I was taught a way of thinking like this that sounds like this, but is not like this. And it was through the lens of, of sort of Hauerwasian ethics, where I was taught that, you know, no, we're not partisan, we're not political. The church by as, as itself, the church itself is, is the politics, is the but there is a danger in that because it, it, only, it only mirrors and reflects without deep enough critique what Candace is, is dropping on us right now about communal salvation and how we really only have each other to rely on, our people. And if we look to the state to save us, that's, that, you know, Hauerwas also points out that mistake. But then the answer is the church. And what there's another corrective that's needed into saying that the church is not always the community of God. Mm. <laughs> right? And sometimes the community of God is that that neighborhood around the widow. Right? And 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 clearly some of Candace's community and our friendship relationships who care for us, who are the, who are our family, true family, not the family we made, not the family that we have, we've been given. And, um, and what does it mean to build a community, church or not church, right? Um, that cares for one another in the, in the way that um, is shown and revealed in the story that Candace exegeted for us. And in the way that, uh, that, uh, that poor communities have often found ways to care for one another and marginalized and oppressed communities have often taking care of one another through a, an imaginative economy that is the alternative to the neoliberal economic world that we're in right now. Um, and so, I don't know, I just think that that's really powerful. Yeah. yeah. Thank and you too many, so just one last thing, too many of our hopes, I love the fact that both of y'all were like, I, I didn't even watch the election because like, or watch the debates because everybody that I know, almost everybody in our church was like on the floor for the next 24 hours and like could not move from it because, and it's not because there's nothing at stake. No, everything's at stake, but, but because their hope is in the wrong place. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So I'm yeah. singing that I'm singing that hymn too, Candace. I'm gonna try to I try to not make it sound like, you know, white a white hymn, you know. But, uh, <laughs> I'm singing it internally because I don't sing out loud. <laughs> yes, the hope is in the wrong place, and guess what? It's not just white folk who who are troubled and on the floor. Um, it's been very surprising to see some um, non-white folk be troubled. Mm -hmm. uh, 
constantly in turmoil and on the floor about this. Um, but I, I would love to close by just reflecting on what Candace shared about the state. It's not going to save us. We save us. And so mm. what does hope look like now in this moment, <laughs> trademark, in this moment of uh, socioeconomic political turmoil, whatever we want to call it, um, that is not in whoever the replacement is on the mm. Supreme Court. It's not in whoever the new president or same old president is going to be. It is in us. Um, we are the ones. So, Candace, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing with us. I am so glad that I was finally able to get you on the, the show, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm glad that we're having these conversations not as like, you know, an intellectual exercise, but really to like be accountable to this call that is is on our lives to, to imagine something otherwise. Um, and so this is really exciting. Um, I think the, the wisdom that's on my heart is from Bishop Pinky in the Brain. Um, and so Pinky and the brain, you know, like every night they would try and every day they would try and take over the world and they would fail every day and they would lose every day. And these plans were so harebrained and ridiculous. And brain would say to Pinky, you know, we're going to do tomorrow. Oh no, Pinky would say to the brain, so what are we going to do tomorrow night, Pinky? Or what are we going to do tomorrow night, brain? And brain says, same thing we do every night try to take over the world so it's exhausting i'm tired i'm i'm not gonna lie to you like your girl is stressed mm. um but we're gonna take over the world like we do every night yeah. um and so we have to fortify ourselves i'm sorry to hear that people were slain for 24 hours post watching this debate um but we really do have to fortify ourselves and make decisions about our wellness because there are some spiritual attacks that are on their way and already mm. here mm. trying to make us as inefficient as possible so that we don't do the work that God is calling us to do. Ooh. The Holy Spirit is moving, Candace, because why then? What were we just talking about yesterday? I, I just, I was totally quoting Pinky in the Brain to Mia yesterday. <laughs> See how the Spirit is working? And I, I actually, I have a Pinky impression. Do you want to hear my Pinky impression? Yes. Hey, hey, Brian, what we going to do tonight? What we going to do tonight, Brian? Hey, hey, Brian, what we going to do tonight? Same thing we do every night. Try and take over the world. That's it. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> thank y'all for joining us. And we're going to wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have joy.